Let me open us in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace in our lives. Thank you that we have a church that we can come to uh, and gather with your people. Thank you for your word, which you've inspired and given and kept up throughout the centuries, that we can have such easy access to it. Forgive us for not taking advantage of that easy access. But thank you that we have this hour now to learn more about what your word says in regards to making decisions. We want to be uh, faithful servants of the Most High King. We want to be children who are pleasing in your sight. And we know that we are in Christ already, no matter what. Uh, But out of the love that you've shown for us, we want to obey your commandments, and we want to love you, and we want to love one another. And in order to do that, we need to make sound, wise, godly, biblical decisions. So we pray that you would help us now as we seek to learn a little more how to do just that. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well... In the Bible, there is something of a prescription, an equation for uh, making biblical change in someone's life. We may have mentioned it in a previous week. At this point, it all blurs together. But basically, the Bible says if you want to change as a believer, effectual change, um, first, you need to renew your mind. You need to think rightly in accordance with the standard of God's word. Orthodoxy. And orthodoxy, we said earlier, precedes orthopraxy, right practice, right? Thinking precedes right doing. So the first step is renew your mind in accordance with the word. And then the following two steps have to come in together. You can't take one without the other. It just doesn't work. We are to put off the old and to put on the new in accordance with our right thinking that aligns with the standard of God's perfect word. So that's what this past week and this week are an attempt to do. This whole class really is trying to help us renew our minds in accordance with the word as we think about the concept of calling, the concept of vocation, what God's will is for our lives. And last week we looked at how not to discern the will of God. Put off the old ways. Put off the errant ideas, the bad practices, things that don't conform to God's word. And this week, we want to try to build up a framework um, of what the Bible does teach so that we can put on the new, so that we can have a good, sound, functional model of how to make decisions that will be in keeping with God's will, as revealed in his word, that will be pleasing to him, that will be fruitful in our own lives, that will allow us to better love one another and to be useful in his kingdom. Last week we looked at uh, a number of the popular methods that evangelicals use today for making decisions, particularly as it relates to finding God's individual will for a believer. We also worked through the common language that's used in association with that model. 
and compared what we often hear believers say, or possibly what we ourselves have said or even say now, uh, we compared that in relation to the process uh, with what God says in the scriptures. And in doing so, we discovered a number of things which can be summarized like this. The Bible does not teach, does not teach, that we get guidance through feelings, having a peace about it, open and closed doors, circumstantial signs and fleeces, or through confirmations. Special directions are sometimes given, but the biblical pattern is that they're rare, they're intrusive, they're clear, they're supernatural, and they often go against conventional wisdom. This week we're going to speak briefly about what the term God's will actually means, biblically, and then try and construct a model for decision making as taught in the scriptures so that we can all grow our ability and confidence in discerning what is right and wrong in any circumstance or decision with which we're faced. So just like last week, I'm going to work largely through material put out by Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason Ministries. But I also want to point you to some additional resources that will be on the end of your handout, <clears throat> which will uh, no doubt be very edifying to you if you make time to work through them. I'll say up front that I agree with what Kokel has to say. Obviously, I'm sharing it. But he is attempting to teach, um, not in a vacuum, okay, uh, but in a world that has a strong tendency towards the internal, subjective, feelings-based path. And as such, he leans a bit towards the rationalistic side of things. What he says and what I'll share is theologically accurate, and it's helpful, and it's good for you to learn and to implement. However, you could also benefit from some of the additional teaching that works out in more detail some of the subjective interactions that the Holy Spirit has with us in the process. So just know that going in. Uh, to that end, these, uh, these resources. Number one is from Third Millennium Ministries. Um, we support Third Mill, part of our missions program, and they have a 10-part uh, a video uh, course in their seminary curriculum online for free uh, called Making Biblical Decisions. And you've got a link there you can go to, and I suggest that you do. About an hour and a half each, you can watch it or listen to it or read it. They've got manuscripts, all that. Um, Dr. Pratt, founder of Third Millennium, um, also has a sermon series that I like, and I've linked out to the, to the files for you. In 2008, he was um, helping out at Independent Press in Memphis, I think during a time of transition, and he taught uh, in these three Sundays on discovering God's will. And so those are just good Pratt sermons um, that are a little bit more condensed from that 15 hours of curriculum. They're very good, and I encourage you to, to listen to those. And then lastly, um, Dr. Greg Bonson, who you've heard me mention before, um, he has a course in personal holiness, personal ethics, and it's like 19 lectures. But the last four are the ones that I've put uh, at that link for you to get. And there's two in particular there that I'll call your attention to. Uh, ethical epistemology, how do we know what's right and wrong? and then ethical decision-making, the process through which we can figure that out. So those are, they're a little bit more maybe formal in the way that he is relaying it because he's talking to seminarians, getting ready to go into the ministry, but absolutely approachable and very much worth 
your time. All right, so let's dig in. What is God's will? Uh, Kokel uses a bipartite view. Uh, he breaks it up into two separate categories. Uh, if you look at that material from Pratt or Third Mill, you'll hear him use a tripart classification. He breaks it out into three separate categories. Uh, we'll talk about what each one of those are. I'll try to note the differences as we go. Kokel just wraps into one category of what Pratt and others delineate separately. So, but none of it's going to change the way that this model works. So the first type of will that, um, that is expressed or that um, Kokel would summarize in Scripture, if you, if you look up God's will, just go to a concordance, look that up, and read through all the verses that you would find. There's a lot there. Um, and you kind of start to categorize them and say, okay, what is, what is this will talking about? What, what, what does the Bible mean by the term God's will? And the context may surprise you, maybe not, um, that it can have different meanings. The designation of God's uh, sovereign will, his designs or his decrees, the, um, perhaps language would be the decretive will. He decrees something, it's the decretive or decretive, however you want to say it, will of God. And this is what refers to um, whatever it is that God actively decrees or allows. He's sovereign, he's in control of all things. It affirms his total control over the events of the universe down to the tiniest detail. Not one rogue molecule. Ephesians 1.1 is an example. God works all things after the counsel of his will. Romans 9.19. Who resists God's will? Have any of you guys sinned yet this morning? This week, right? So we've resisted God's will. So this, surely this can't be his, his a will. If we can resist it, what's he, what's he talking about here? This is a different kind of will. Who can resist his will? This is his sovereign will. Daniel 4.35. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand. Acts 2.23. This man, delivered up by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Acts 4, 27-28. There were gathered together Herod and Pontius Pilate to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And in Job 12, 9, the hand of the Lord has done this. Job believed that regardless of who brings on the affliction, that God is the one who allows it. God's sovereign will, for the most part, is hidden. It's secret. Um, we can really only discover it in one of two ways. We usually learn it in hindsight, it's looking back on the past. You want to know what God's sovereign will for you today is? Well, I'll tell you tomorrow, right? The other way is through the scriptures. Some of his sovereign purposes have been revealed in, in the Bible. The fate of the lost and saved, prophecy, etc., we don't have access to God's sovereign will for the purposes of particular proactive decision-making. So it really doesn't factor in directly into the model. It does play a role, and we'll talk about it at the end. But that's one type of God's will, God's sovereign will. The other type of God's will would be God's moral will. Uh, Pratt and others would use two terms there, the desiderative will and the preceptive will. You've heard... Like precept ministry, precept upon precept, the commands of Scripture. That's, that's preceptive will. 
Desiderative will is like God's desires. It's, it's not God's will that any should perish. Well, they do. So what's that talking about? That's talking about his, his desires. Now, it's anthropomorphic. It's speaking to him like he's a human. He's not. He's more than us. But this is God's moral will represents his commands and his desires as revealed in Scripture. It describes how men and women ought to live. And here are some examples. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not willing that any should perish. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Ephesians 5.16-18 Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 13-15, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for... This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's moral will is completely revealed in the Bible. What is needed for salvation and our sanctification. Proof text on that would be 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. You, however, continue, this is Paul talking to Timothy, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The wisdom unto salvation, and that it would equip you for every good work, that it would sanctify you and make you ready to do all that God would require of you, all of the good things that God calls you to do. God's moral will does not connote individualized guidance, but is broad and applies to every Christian equally. God's no respecter of persons. There's no particular prescription for you or me, but there is God's perfect, unchanging truth, which applies equally both to you and to me. Kokel asked the question, what is conspicuous about these verses in virtue of its absence? They don't mention anything about God's individual will for me. It's not about what I do, but more about who I am. He says, God's will is not which woman you marry, but what kind of husband you are. God's will is not which job you take, but what kind of worker you are. It's not where you live, but what kind of neighbor you are. It's not what ministry you're in, but what kind of servant you are. God's will is not a particular place to go, thing to do, or item to procure. God's will is about you. And in a sense, God's will is you. And if you want to know what God's perfect will is, it's that you be made just like Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, To those who are called according to his purpose, we know that. But why? He goes on. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. 
That's the goal. That's the telos. That's the end. You want to know what God's will is? It's that you be more and more conformed into the image of Christ until one day your sanctification is complete. Which will only happen when he comes back and does it. Coco asked the question, when was the last time you made a decision based on humility or self-sacrifice, servanthood or selflessness, or the interest of proclaiming the gospel? These are all characteristics and priorities of Christ. Do you factor them into your decision-making? But wait, some people will say, God has two different wills? That sounds like a contradiction. But the problem can be we avoided uh, when we realize that God wants things. He wills them in two, in two different ways. He has sovereign decrees. These are the things which no one can deny or disobey. And then God has moral desires. These are things which man can and does, unfortunately, disobey. An example, uh, a couple examples actually from the text. First Samuel 8, 4, 4 through 22, Israel is asking for a king because they want to be like the other nations. They'd been led by God directly, and now we want a king like everybody else. Well, this was a rejection of God's leadership and a violation of his, of his will, of his moral will. And yet, it's a part of God's sovereign plan to raise up the throne of David. Both sovereign will and moral will are at play. We see the same thing, two things working together in Acts 2-3. This man, Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, part of God's sovereign will, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, a violation of his moral will. So what about God's individual will for me? God's sovereign will is secret and his moral will is totally revealed. Okay. Uh, R.C. Sproul, I, I don't remember where I read it or heard it from him, but he said... His favorite verse in all of the Bible, you might know, is Deuteronomy 29.29, which says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. God's secret will is his. He reveals what he wants to. And what he reveals, we need to... Take heed and obey. God doesn't care, doesn't even call you to know all that he knows. But he does call you to listen to everything he says, believe everything he says, and obey everything that he says. No other will exists in the Bible. Kokel says, I found no special category of God's will in the scriptures tailor-made for me that I had to discover before I could make decisions. So what should we conclude? He says, the individual will of God, as commonly understood, does not exist. Does the Bible teach that there's a specific will for our lives that we must discover before we can make our decisions? No. No. In terms of my functional day-to-day decision-making, there is no personalized God's will for me to discover. God has not already decided for me. Therefore, there are no signs that I have to read and no voice of God that I must hear in order to make sound, biblical, godly decisions. 
There's no individualized perfect will that I must figure out and no permissive will that I have to watch out for. Kokel says, uh, while talking to a very young Christian, she used the phrase, God told me four times in about 60 seconds. And when he questioned her about it, she said, oh, yes, we have a wonderful relationship. He says, for 2,000 years, getting private communications from God was never seen as an important part of the optimal relationship with God. Old Testament prophets signed such statements with their own blood, and yet such words fall from our lips like water. We attribute our desires to God told me to. We add to his word, we take his name in vain, and we condemn ourselves and others from such falsehood. J.I. Packer says, what shall we say of the personal guidance model? Um, The first thing to say is that this idea of guidance is actually a novelty among Orthodox evangelicals. It does not go back further than the last century. Second, it has led people to so much foolish action on the one hand and so much foolish inaction on the other, as well as puzzlement and heartbreak when the hotline to God seems to go silent, that it has to be seen as discredited. Third, he says, it must be said that Scripture gives us no more warrant constantly to expect personal hotline or voice from the control tower guidance than to expect new authoritative revelations for the guidance of the whole church. We believe the canon's closed. There's no new book that just showed up. No golden tablets to decipher and follow. So why would we think that he's doing the same thing for us that we say he doesn't do for the church? No, God doesn't decide for us. Instead, God has dignified us with the responsibility of making significant choices ourselves. God is a good father. And good fathers do not raise their children by making every decision for them, but rather they teach their children how to make good decisions. I'm going to say that again. God is a good father. And good fathers do not raise their children by making every decision for them, but rather they teach their children how to make good decisions. And that's got to leave some of you maybe feeling depressed or empty, maybe even angry. Doesn't God care? Is he not involved? Has he left me all alone? Well, yes, of course God cares, and of course he's involved. And no, he's not left you alone. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So some summary observations. The hard work here is going through the paradigm shift, allowing you to see the issues with maybe new eyes. If we started with the model that's about to follow, uh, you may have been tempted just to think, okay, great, this is a, new, this is a, how, this is a better how-to. This is how I'm going to find that individual blueprint for me. So thanks, thanks for the new tools, Brian. But no, we needed to first see that um, there is no special prepackaged plan for you which God requires or even desires for you to discover prior to making wise decisions. So quick review. Our model of decision-making must include and entail the basic 
biblical observations on the issue that we've gone through. On the one hand, we did not observe any indication that there was a blueprint for your or my life which we must discover in order to make our decisions. We did not observe any scripture telling us to pray for God's decision before we act. We didn't find any place where we were instructed to hear from the Lord before we make even significant decisions. And we didn't see any hint of the kind of language we use in making decisions. I felt led. God told me. I'm trying to find God's will about. I had a piece about it, etc. On the other hand, we did observe commands and prohibitions expected to be obeyed. Places where critical and important decisions seem to be left up to us, like marriage or ministry or choice of job, etc. The rule of freedom of choice in non-moral areas. The legitimacy of our personal desires. The importance of our conscience. The need to make a wise use of our time and avoid unnecessary waiting. The command to pray for wisdom. Not, not special guidance, but wisdom. And, and even the decision-making habits of the apostles in the early church. So some conclusions from Koch. Well, he says, these observations were stunning to me given the current evangelical emphasis on hearing from the Lord in making decisions. I concluded that God doesn't decide for me. Instead, like a good father, he teaches me how to make good decisions. So what is the method that God teaches us? Well, he calls it the wisdom model. I don't think it's his word. People have been talking about it before him, but he's a good teacher, and we're going to go through his summary here. The wisdom model's guiding principle, and this is in your handout, Using the guidelines of God's word combined with wisdom, you have the freedom to do anything you want with God's blessing. And that's important. Using the guidelines of God's word combined with wisdom, you have the freedom to do anything that you want with God's blessing. With God standing beside you, hand on your shoulder saying, Go get them. You got this. Note the three parts that are mentioned. Number one, God's moral will from the scriptures. Number two, wisdom. And number three, personal wants and desires. This is the wisdom model, and this is what we're going to look at. God's guidelines for decision making. This is the model we see practiced by the disciples. A model that's entirely consistent with each of the above observations. Kokel says it's the most workable, practical, biblical model that he knows of. So this is going to be set out in three overlapping circles surrounded by one all-encompassing one. The first circle is God's moral will. So these are options that are commanded or prohibited in Scripture. What does God have to say about this issue in his word? How do we learn God's moral will? Well, we learn it through reading. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Uh, we learn through careful consideration. 2 Timothy 2.7, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. We learn through diligent study, search, and inquiry. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth, rightly dividing the word of truth. Reading, careful consideration, diligent study, search, and inquiry. Meditation, Psalm 1-2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Memorization. Uh, Psalm 119-11. Thy word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against thee. 
and gifted teachers. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. What is the objective of God's moral will? Total obedience. Remember that God's moral will extends not only to the choices themselves, but also to your motives and your intentions. Remember, Jesus, you've heard it said, this commandment, but I tell you the heart behind it too. You can do a moral thing, his example is like being a musician, you can do a moral thing like becoming a musician with an immoral motive, maybe uh, anger towards your parents, or an immoral intent, like revenge. Uh, an example um, of God's moral will, that uh, we'll look at this example of marriage through each of these circles. So God's moral will in marriage. You have the moral liberty of marrying anyone that you want as long as he or she is a Christian. Don't be unequally yoked. A member of the opposite sex. Shouldn't have to be said, but has to be said this day. And biblically free to remarry if divorced. Not everyone is. You can read 1 Corinthians 7 for more on that. And that's it. Uh, God's moral will is what does the scripture um, command or prohibit? And that tells me what fits within that circle. The second circle is wisdom. And you apply wisdom to the remaining choices or options that are left over. Why wisdom? Well, it helps us make good decisions. Proverbs 2 uh, says, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. Then you will discern righteousness, justice, and equity and every good course. Proverbs 8 says, uh, He who finds me, that is wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself and all who hate me love death. What is wisdom? Um, the definition I've always used is that wisdom is God's truth applied to your life. Kokel says wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Dr. Bonson, one of the resources I gave you, he says guidance or, or wisdom comes from the rational application of God's teaching to the objective facts of our situation. I'll read a quote from him. Uh, Christians should avoid Mystical conceptions of divine guidance. That's what we talked about all week last week. Christians should avoid mystical conceptions of divine guidance. There is a pervasive weakness in the church in terms of understanding God's will. So many will say, well, I'm just going to pray and God's going to guide me. Or they'll say, he's going to give me this impulse or nudge or feeling that I need. And for all the piety with which that may ring, that is not biblical. That is not God's idea of guidance. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is that which is sensible, reasonable, rational. Here's a good mental rule of thumb from uh, Dr. Bonson. He says, when you're, when you're making a decision, is it, is it wise? He says, take all of the facts of your situation, all of the biblical principles from studying God's word, and do this in the midst of dependent prayer and the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, and then draw conclusions and explain the rationale such that if you were to write it all out, and hand it to a hundred Christians that the vast majority could see how you came to that conclusion and would agree with it. If everyone's telling you that sounds crazy, that might be crazy. 
If everyone says, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So wisdom is that which is sensible. It's also that which is expedient. Um, It's not hurried or hasty, but it's also not unnecessarily delayed. Ephesians 5.15 says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Okay, so don't dawdle. Don't sit around and, oh, I'm just going to wait on the Lord in some passive sense. Now, we are called to wait on the Lord, but waiting on the Lord is an active thing. While you're waiting, what should you be doing? Searching the Word, seeking counsel, praying for wisdom, pursuing the truth. Wisdom allows us to see all the alternatives and all the consequences so that we don't do something foolish. Proverbs 12:15 says, "The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice." Proverbs 13:10 by insolence, pride, arrogance, overconfidence uh, comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. And then Proverbs 15:22 says, "Without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors, with much wisdom, they succeed." Where do we get wisdom? Well, James says that we pray for it. James 1.5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. There's a promise from God. You need help making a decision? You need wisdom for that? Ask him. You have not because you ask not, says James. Don't you want your prayers to be answered? It helps. You, you, have, a, you have a better uh, win record if you actually ask God for the things he's promised to give you because he won't not give them to you. So if you want to have your prayers answered effectively and quickly, and you can see the fruit and you can praise God for it, ask him for things that he promised to give you, like wisdom. Even Solomon asked for it. Second Chronicles 1.10, he said, Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of yours? And in verse 11, we see that God was pleased with his request. Now, this is interesting. Solomon was a king of Israel. He had a direct line to God in ways that other believers don't. Even in the context of this verse, uh, verse 7, it says, In the night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, What shall I get? God was speaking directly to him. So even with that type of direct line to God, Solomon knew that God desired for him to make decisions based on wisdom and not based on constant or even regular hearing from God. So he asked for wisdom and God was pleased. All right, we also get wisdom, we, we pray for it, um, we ask God for it. We also get wisdom from counsel, instruction, research, knowledge, and experience. Uh, Coco says, how do I make good decisions? Wisdom. How do I get wisdom? Experience. How do I get experience? Bad decisions. So incidentally, wisdom allows for differing views on what is most sensible or appropriate when morality is not an issue. And again, the example with marriage. You have the liberty of marrying anyone you want who qualifies by God's moral will. But... You have to live with the consequences. So, marry wisely. Marry well. Kokel says, um, marrying a nag is not a sin, it's just stupid. <laughs> uh, he quotes Proverbs 21.9. He says, it's better to live in a corner of a roof than a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 27.15. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He says, don't marry for beauty at the sacrifice of discretion, Proverbs eleven twenty two, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, 
So is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Kokel says, you get the gold, but you're stuck with the pig, too. Um, so just note, before offense occurs too much in your heart, Solomon wrote Proverbs as advice to his son if he had been writing for his daughter, who had included all sorts of counsel against lazy, passive, effeminate men. So don't take any offense to the above. All right. Um, sometimes God's moral will is a guide to our making wise decisions, Okay. So, for example, uh, the Bible teaches in Ephesians 5 that wives should be responsive and obedient to the leadership of their husband and that husbands should be sacrificial in loving their wives. Therefore, wisdom suggests from that moral guidance or uh, command that a woman should choose a man she respects whose leadership she can easily respond to. Okay? If you're embarrassed by him before you get married, don't. You know, if you think he's a nerd or a dork or you're not going to submit to him easily, don't. Don't, put your, don't set yourself up to that. And that a man select a woman that he can be a servant to through loving and leading in a sacrificial way. If she's hard to love, move on. Use, use the guidelines of God's moral will to make wise decisions. There's a problem that often occurs with the individual will or the blueprint model. What happens is we supposedly get our own personal word from the Lord and then do something that's either contrary to the word or seriously violating wisdom. And we do so. Why? Because we really believe the Lord is leading in this, right? That's simply not true. Uh, even good examples. Uh, he used the example of William Carey. Missionaries, missionaries who leave their spouses and their children behind to go on the field. First... Corinthians 7 says that husbands have, a, have a, a sexual duty to their wives and wives to their husbands. It's hard to do that from around the world. Likewise, husbands' fathers are supposed to bring up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. How are you going to do that from across the world? It's wrong. So William Carey, wonderful man, great model in many ways, was outside of God's will in that portion of his service. In that facet of his life, he was doing something contrary to God's will. The question is, well, can God not use, you know, did God not do great things to him? Of course, God can use the works of sinners. Otherwise, he would do, there would be nothing accomplished here, you know. Um, so it's simple, so no, no matter how sincerely you might feel it, even if your heart of hearts tells you to be an axe murderer, that's not what God's calling you to do, okay? To marry an unbeliever, no, that's not what God's calling you to do because his word says otherwise. All right, uh, moral will, wisdom, third circle, personal factors. These are our desires and our conscience. Uh, personal desires, believe it or not, our desires are valid and a part of biblical decision-making. Uh, in marriage, 1 Corinthians 7.40, in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. Paul gives guidance based off of how he thinks she would be more happy whether or not she should get married, not who. Um, example uh, in giving, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each one do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It matters. Your desires matter in what it is that God wants you to do. They don't, they don't trump God's moral will by any stretch. They're subordinate to that. They shouldn't go against wisdom, subordinate to that. But within that sphere, what's left over, what you want matters there's personal conscience 
personal desires and personal conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience. Our confession says so. Uh, we don't bind one another's conscience, uh, and we don't sin against our own. Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other, my conscience binds me here. Uh, our conscience is to be a guide. We all have heard that, always let your conscience be your guide. Um, though it is always subordinate to God's word. Okay? The goal of sanctification is to have our conscience grow more in line with God's word. A good treatment on this would be that ethical epistemology lecture from Dr. Bonson about subjective right versus objective right. You can, you can uh, on the one hand, be subjectively correct in what you're doing if you're acting in accordance with your conscience. But your conscience can be out of accord with the word, so you can be objectively sinning in that same thing. Shouldn't go against your conscience. You want the two to align. So we want to submit our consciences to the word. We have to do that by continually renewing our mind and growing up in Christ. All right. Um, in actual practice, this generally happens in reverse order. We first think about what we want, and then we consider whether it's wise and moral. And it really doesn't matter. The important thing is not the order, but the final product. Is your decision morally sound, prudent, or wise, and in concert with your desires and personal conscience? Uh, but what if the personal circle doesn't overlap with the other two? Sometimes the only choices available to us are ones that we don't like. What then? If we're faced with a moral obligation, like being faithful to our promises, um, then we must do what is right and not what it is that we like. Psalm 15, 4 speaks of the one who fears the Lord, and he says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. If you make a vow, uphold it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Even if you, you know, you're stepping in it. That's why you need to be careful not to make rash vows. Don't make promises that you can't keep because you're bound to them. So it doesn't matter if you don't like it, if it doesn't feel good, you need to do it because you said you would. If we have no moral obligation, like getting married versus staying single, then we can choose to do nothing for the time being. So if, if we don't, I don't happen to like anything available around me, okay, you don't have to do anything right now. But you're going to live with the consequences of those decisions. So the example of uh, personal factors, this circle in marriage, your personal likes and dislikes should be factored into the equation. What's physically attractive to you? What kind of personality do you enjoy? Ultimately, the decision who to marry is up to you. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul teaches that there are pros and cons to being single. Pro, single people can serve the Lord more effectively. He says in um, verse 7, Chapter 7, verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. So, a pro of being single, single people can serve the Lord more effectively. But con, single people may suffer sexual frustration. Uh, 7, 9 says, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn in passion. And here, uh, Paul does not mean that two people burning with sexual passion for each other should necessarily get married, but that if someone's inclined to burn with passion, if they don't have the gift of singleness or celibacy, that's a good sign that he should find a spouse rather than fall into sexual sin. There are also pros and cons to being married. Pro, married people enjoy sexual intimacy. 
7.3, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Con, married people must split their attentions and their energies. <clears throat> Verse 33 says, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the woman who's unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the woman who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. There are moral obligations constraining each decision. Okay, So single people cannot fornicate. And married people cannot get divorced unbiblically. All right. Can I ask you a question? Sure. prayers, Joy, and no one here is going to take that Kevin has taken you away from the Lord in any sense. <laughs> no, so what God has joined together, let no man or woman separate, including yourself. Um, it is good to desire to be zealous for the Lord. How you are zealous for the Lord today, if you want to please God and be on fire, do you have a burning love for your children? Yeah, you'd die for them in a moment, wouldn't you? And a, and a great desire for your husband? Of course. Those are desires to love the Lord. He said, do you, many of you fed me and clothed me and did all these things for me. How, how, when did we do that, Lord? When you did it unto the least of these. As you love your husband and as you love your children, you're pouring out yourself, which is only limited. You're not God. Um, that zeal is zeal unto the Lord because you're directing it into the places that he's called you to do so. So don't think that it's less for you to have passion for your children. and You might be tired right now because you've got young kids. I do too. I feel like a zombie most of the time. But that zeal, that, that willingness to lay down your life, there's no greater love than that. And love doesn't come from you. It comes from him. So know that the zeal that you have for your husband and your children is zeal for the Lord to the degree that you're doing it you know, faithfully and unto him. Um, we can maybe talk more later. That's a good question. <clears throat> All right, so the final circle, God's sovereign will, <clears throat> surrounds all of the inner overlapping three. God's sovereignty doesn't directly affect our decisions directly, but it does affect our attitudes. Okay? We don't know his, his sovereign will. We don't know that secret unrevealed will, so it's not going to factor into the equation that we're making in our decisions, 
but it absolutely affects our attitudes as we approach those decisions and as we work through them. When God intervenes in ways we can't control, we can trust the circumstances and the results to him because he's sovereignly in control. Um, you know, the, what is the song or the phrase? You cannot trace his hand. You can always trust his heart. You know, um, was it? Uh, it's not Owen. Who is it that says um, everything is everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Um, we can trust God, who is sovereign over all things. And he's sovereign not as a tyrant who hates you and wants to, you know, beat it out of you, to punish you or torture you or strip you of joy. And he is your father. He's a good father. And he loves you enough to send his son to die for you. So this is a good sovereignty and it can help us. Recognizing God's sovereign will, that that everything we do happens within it, gives us two things. It gives us freedom and it gives us rest. Freedom. In the process of my free agency in making decisions, God fulfills his sovereign purpose. Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. It gives us freedom, but it also gives us rest. We make our plans with an attitude of humble surrender, trusting him with the final result. If God wills so-and-so, then great. If it doesn't work out, fine. God's sovereignty encourages an attitude of utter dependence and trust. James 4, 13-16 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. And um, Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. We can rest in the sovereign hand of our loving Father as we make these decisions. So, uh, does knowing God's will require some kind of special sixth sense? Some uber-holy trait? No. Rather, spiritual maturity is... Growing in our understanding of the word. And you can do that anytime you want. Pick it up on your phone. Read it in the book. 15 minutes a day will get you through the whole Bible in less than a year. Growing in our wisdom. The ability to apply God's word to life circumstances. And growing in our submission to God's revealed will. And also to his sovereign designs, his providence. That's spiritual maturity. The result... Peace. Okay, this is not the peace, not the sense of peace that God's um, signal that you've chosen what he wants. This is not that kind of, you know, let me get this peace about it before I make a decision. No. Instead, this is a peace that says, I feel good about the decision that I made. I pleased my father because I followed his instructions in making a good decision. My little girl comes up, Daddy, Daddy, look what I did. I, I, I decided to do this. And I drew this for you. Do you like it? Sure, babe. You did a great job. You know, as long as she wasn't drawing some horrible thing. You know? um, but what if you have no peace? Okay, well, some decisions are hard, so you may have consternation, but you may be violating wisdom. So I'd say look further and seek counsel. 
Um, there is an exception. All right, last couple minutes here. Uh, intrusive special revelation, okay? Um, there may be times when God does want you to follow a special plan, like he did on rare occasions in the Bible. But remember the biblical pattern. This does not come by some internal feeling of being led, but rather God's direction comes uninvited. It's clear. It's supernatural. It may be contrary to conventional wisdom, and it becomes morally obligatory if and when given. All right, so the wisdom model in summary. Rounding up. In the absence of a clear, definitive, special command of God, make the wisest, most expedient choice. Guidance is simple. If God has not given a direct command in Scripture, then do the wisest and most desirable thing. Sometimes that process can be quick, and sometimes it takes a long time. It all depends on the circumstances of each decision. Remember the guiding principle. Using the guidelines of God's Word, combined with wisdom, you have the freedom to do anything you want with God's blessing. And we'll close with a note from J.I. Packer. He says, The basic fault here is disregard of a principle that is writ large in Scripture, too large perhaps for some to see. The principle is that the right course is always to choose the wisest means to the noblest end. Namely, the advancing of God's kingdom and glory. Moral law delimits the area within which the choice must be made. God gives wisdom and then leads us within these limits to the best option. God enables us to discern this by prayerfully using our minds. You've been given the mind of Christ, believer. Thinking how scripture applies, comparing alternatives, weighing advice, taking account of our heart's desire, estimating our capabilities. Some call this common sense, but the Bible calls it wisdom. And it is one of God's most precious gifts. Luke, uh, my reading this morning, Luke seven thirty-five. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Um, we will judge one another and ourselves by the fruit of the decisions we make, and even the process by which we make those decisions. So let's choose wisdom. Let me pray for us, Father in heaven. You are. So gracious to us, you are a good father. You've given us this immeasurable blessing of your word. You've given us your very Holy Spirit inside of us to show us what's inside of it, to illumine those pages, to help us to see Christ on every page. Help us to be wise. You've made us a community. We were once not a people, and now we are your people. And iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. So you've called us together under Christ's sovereign lordship, to use your word and wisdom, sound counsel, to make wise decisions for your glory, for the kingdom. Help us to do that as we go out from here. Help us to grow in our maturity so that we can be useful to you in this short time uh, here in this life that you've given us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.